Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics into conversation. This month, we are going to be talking about a couple of food-based comics, so I hope you're hungry. Not a good joke. We are going to be looking at Delicious in Dungeon, a manga by Rayo Kukui, and we are going to be looking at Lucy Nisley's graphic novel, Relish. We are also, as usual, going to be having an academic review. This month, Michael is going to be reviewing Manga and Anthology of Global Perspectives, edited by Tony Johnson-Woods. Let's get started. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University, and I am joined, as always, by... Andrew DeMann. I'm an instructor at St. Jerome's University. And... Michael Hancock. I'm an instructor at the University of Waterloo. So we're going to walk through the two texts we're looking at this week, and we will start, I guess, perhaps with Relish by Lucy Nisley. Uh, Relish is Nisley's 2013 follow-up and spiritual successor to her breakout graphic novel, French Milk which established her as a fresh voice in the comics community. Where French Milk could be described as more of a travelogue or travel journal, Relish has an intimate, even domestic feel at times, as Nisley presents key moments from her life alongside a culinary experience or experiences that connect to that moment, uh, or perhaps even help to define it. What we see is a life defined in many ways by food, with Nisley's narrated eye serving as a grower, producer, evaluator, creator, and above all, a partaker of culinary delights. Rendered in a fluid, clear-lined style with a bright and earthly color palette, the aesthetic of the book is emblematic of the comfort food that it celebrates, and some of Nisley's best draftsmanship is reserved for the double-spread recipes that punctuate each chapter. The effect is powerful, making cooking for yourself an act of reading this book. All in all, Relish serves up a celebration of the art of cooking, one that anyone from the ever-emerging foodie culture could be delighted to consume. And that's as many food puns as I was able to squeeze into my introduction. (laughs) Thank you, Andrew. Now Michael will introduce us to Delicious in Dungeon. Delicious in Dungeon is a manga that is a comic book written in the style, tradition, and context of the Japanese comic book industry. Specifically, it's dungeon crawler comedy manga with a Gurumi or Ryori theme, and this seems like a good moment to apologize for my pronunciation of virtually all words (laughs) in this podcast. And that means gourmet and cuisine, respectively. The manga is written and drawn by Ryoko Kui, a manga artist whose previous work includes the 2011 collection The Dragon School is on Top of the Mountain and the 2013 Terrarium in the Drawer which received the Excellence Award in the Manga Division in the 17th Annual Japan Media Arts Festival. Since 2014, her Delicious in Dungeon series has been in continuous publication in the monthly magazine Haruda. The first seven chapters were collected into this volume, which was released in Japan in 2015 and in North America by Yen Press in 2017. The book stars a group of adventurers who fulfill standard Dungeon and Dragon stereotypes. Laos is the Warrior Knight, Marcel is an all-purpose magic user. Chilchuck is a thief character. A bad run-in with a dragon ends with them back at the surface, but with a cost. Another party member and Leos's sister has sacrificed herself in order to save him, and the trio must travel back down to resurrect her before the dragon that ate her finishes digesting. However, without any funds to purchase supplies, they opt to forgo provisions and instead eat the monsters they come across a practice Leos admits has been something that he's been long curious about. His enthusiasm attracts Senshi, 
a dwarf warrior and culinary expert, who offers to be their guide to the new world of subterranean foraging. This first volume consists of their early travels in the dungeon, which involves cooking up basilisk omelets, walking mushroom hot pots, and big bat tempura. Delicious in the Dungeons has made the rounds in some of the geekier areas of fandom, and achieved a degree of popularity among both manga fans and readers who don't typically read manga or even comic books. And I think I understand why. It's most definitely part of the manga tradition, and draws on several of the themes and stylistics of the form. Panels read from left to right, it uses a heavy amount of onomatopoeia, and the characters can vary in degrees of cartoonish abstraction while the food is presented in hyper-detail. However, to a certain segment of readers, it's also very familiar in its gentle satire and exploration of Dungeons & Dragons, most notably in the way that adventurers interact with the larger dungeon, which is, I'm sure, something that we'll get into later. Leos and Senshi's vision of ecologically responsible monster slaying critiques typical Dungeon & Dragon perspective while still allowing the power fantasy of mastery that is part and parcel of the genre. The difference here is that the mastery is that of both monster slaying and constructing a really good meal. Thank you guys both so much. So there's so much we can talk about with these two very interesting texts, but Michael, you said I was allowed to ask you, you chose the two <laughs> texts for this episode. Why are we comparing these two very different books? Well, I think... Food is a really interesting medium for comics in general because mm -hmm. so much of the appeal of food can't be conveyed through comics. Yeah. Like you can't taste it. Yeah. Uh, you can't smell it. And I wanted something that explored that in an imaginative way, so delicious and dungeon. And actually, my original pairing was going to be a comic called Chew. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, that seemed like... If you've got one comedy, fantasy approach to food, I, I thought that it would be more interesting to take something that's a more grounded version of yeah. that, something that's even non-fiction, and yeah. see, if, there's, see if, if the only thing they have in common is food, is there still enough commonality there to say something about it? <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I do want to ask you about how food relates, the sensuality of food kind of relates to and is conveyed through the comic book medium. But before we get there, let's just sort of back up a little bit and talk a little bit about where these texts are located, kind of culturally and generically, because they're quite different in terms of where they're both coming from. And that might sort of give us an intro, um, an avenue in which to, to kind of compare them. So let's start with Relish. Could you give us a little sense, Andrew, of where Relish kind of fits into the comics memoir, comics autobiography kind of tradition or history? Is it sort of a bit different from some of the iconic works in that tradition? It's kind of complicated. I, I see it as an outlier for the most part, just yeah. in, in terms of um, female autobiography uh, or autobiographics, as it's sometimes called, uh, in comics. It's not extremely intimate. Uh, yeah. As a form of disclosure, it's not using a really confessional style. Uh, it, it's sticking more to the surface and putting way more emphasis on that connection to kind of the, the food element in itself. Uh, it's also a little bit more metatextual, uh, I think, in that it's encouraging you to, I mean, as I said in the introduction, it, in order to read this book, you have to cook from the recipes. Yeah. And cooking becomes a form of reading. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting way of kind of um, moving outside of it. So it's got one foot, I would say, in kind of that autobiographics camp, but it's very different tonally uh, from what we might expect. Uh, and then it has its other foot in the, this this older sort of, I guess we could call it a literary tradition uh, of writing about food, yeah. uh, which is almost a travelogue in itself. Yeah. Um, so 
Yeah, I, I don't think there's a lot like Relish out there. As um, I mean, like it, it doesn't read as a radical text, um, but I think what Nisley's doing is still fairly unique, uh, at least amongst um, um, comics authors at this point. Perhaps representative then in a general sense of the expansion of comics as a medium mm-hmm. to sort of tell all these different types of stories because it fits into autobio and memoir technically, but it's very different from what we typically expect from. Yeah, there's definitely all kinds of points of comparison and contrast yeah. that you could bring to this, yeah. but I, I, I literally can't think of anything other than Nisley's other work that I would yeah. say is very um, um, similar. To, well, that, to relish. That's fair. So what about Delicious and Dungeon? There's a lot of interesting sort of intertexts and context for this one. And obviously we're talking about a cultural difference here, going from an American comic to a Japanese comic. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the intertexts or, or influences or commentaries that are going on in Delicious and Dungeon? And I'm hoping that you're going to be a good resource on this with your <laughs> games background. Well, I'm hoping too. <laughs> um, I will say, maybe starting from the food side of things, mm-hmm. I know that I like... Like my hosts, I believe we don't have a huge manga background. We're dipping our toes in a bit here. Yeah. And but I knew I was aware that there's an entire subgenre of food related stuff in manga. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be talking more about this later, but one of the most useful things in thinking about this book for me was a chapter in the book I'm reviewing. Uh Lori Brow's Oshinbo's Adventures in Eating, Food, Communication, and Culture in Japanese Comics. Uh, and it's yes. almost more informative for Relish, oh. because it's all about how food connects to memory and family, oh, okay. which is not really the food connections that Dungeon or Delicious in Dungeon is <laughs> yeah. gone. But so it's been very informative in that just stylistic term, things of the genre, that it's very typical in this for food to be hyper-realistic, yeah. where the everything else is a little more abstract and cartoonish. Yeah. We certainly see that. The other side of things is the game side of things. Yeah. So can you give us a little bit of context about how this comic actually works? You talked about it a little bit in your intro, yeah. but there's sort of some weird things that are kind of game intertexts here where you can go into the dungeon and you die, but you can kind of come back and sort of mm-hmm. the nature of death in this world is quite ambiguous. It starts with a respawning, does it not? Yes, it does. Yeah. 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 This is a game, or this is a manga that is relying really heavily on, I hesitate to say video game tropes, because even, it's even more general than that. Game tropes. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Particularly, it's very heavily drawing on Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which is the basis for ridiculously huge amount of video games, both from the Japanese context and from the Western context, Mm -hmm. that they all have Dungeons and Dragons as their root. Maybe the easiest way to introduce Dungeons and Dragons to an unfamiliar audience is to just tell them to watch the first season of Stranger Things. One of the reasons Dungeons and Dragons isn't as prominent in American culture as it or in North American culture as it deserves to be, is because of that 80s scare, that there's still this idea that we probably shouldn't talk about this too much. I am thinking of the movie Mazes and Monsters Mm. from 1982, which, yeah, is very much in conversation with that. Or season three of Riverdale. I'm not caught up. Uh, (laughs) Yep, it's all about Dungeons and Dragons. Saying under my breath, (laughs) I'll catch up at some Yeah, so there's kind of a geek renaissance of Dungeons & Dragons going on right now. Yes, I've definitely seen that (laughs) happening around me, yes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that doesn't get talked about as much is that 
these are games that have particular value sets behind and not always positive value sets once yeah. you strip around strip out the part where you're getting together with friends and having a good time uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to shout out to uh, Gerald Voorhees and Andrew Berg here separately they have both written essays on role-playing games and their neoliberal roots that video games in this role-playing mode are essentially let's go to an area, let's fight the monsters, let's strip this area of all its value, and use that for to basically increase the statistics that co- constitute our vital stats. Yeah. <laughs> that it's a very direct, how do we turn these resources into things that make us more powerful? Yeah. And I think one of the really appealing things in Delicious in Dungeon is that it offers a counter to that. Yeah, that I was just thinking is, about how yeah. they, they used to be gold strippers, right? But now they're approaching yeah. the dungeon in a different way. You look at it on the surface and it's like, oh no, you are now eating these monsters yeah. of more of arguably more sentience than a lot of the things yeah. <laughs> But it's presented as a way of, of a much more balanced approach that mm-hmm. you are participating in this rather than the dungeon being this thing that foreign explorers are invading, it becomes this thing that you are you have made yourself a part of. Mm-hmm. And this isn't something that it kind of puts in big letters, so to speak, but I think it's a nice subversion of typical approaches to what's sometimes called murder hobos. Well, yeah, I mean, you're getting me thinking about so many moments from the comic where they have a confrontation with understanding it as an ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. I'd never thought about it as an ecosystem. I'd never thought about things growing there and they exist in their own kind of system and some things eat other things and stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, even though they're eating those things, it's bringing them into a more kind of holistic relationship with that space than they'd enjoy previously. Which is a really, that brings us back to food because that's a really, I think, common culinary narrative that we need to be a bigger part of our of how our food is made that we have separated ourselves from that um this is maybe calling someone out but well this is maybe i was going to say a good segue to relish in terms of is it breaking down some of those sort of narratives or issues that we culturally or individually have with food or you know is it dealing kind of with the culture of food in a critical way or not what would you say andrew I would describe Relish, like, Alison Bechdel has the little quote on the front cover saying, move over joy of cooking. In that way, I think Relish really is kind of nostalgic in its treatment of food within our culture, and that maybe makes it a little simplistic as well. I don't think it's engaging too much with the politics of it. I'm not suggesting it's an inferior text for that. I think it's trying to be comfort food. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's absolutely. there's a nobility to that, and I think again everything about the aesthetic pushes towards that. So I, I think it's not really. And she's nostalgic for her parents' generation as well. Yeah, she's nostalgic for a lot of things here with regards to how she views the food. Uh, it, it's a very particular vantage point. It's it's you know natural or um, organic. Um, um, lovingly cooked in a communal environment, celebrated by family, sometimes with a European standard in particular. So, I mean, in some ways it's a little bit particular and you could argue there's critiques forming out of those things. Um, But I don't don't see politics on Miss Lee's mind really at all here. Well, we can get get at that with some specific examples from it, but yeah, go ahead, Michael. Well, I was going to do a much more personal call-out. Oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. (laughs) Because... um, 
Okay, um, Andrew, if you don't want to talk about this, this is fine, but I know you've done <laughs> mushroom foraging. Oh, yes. Um, could you talk about, like, what are the kind of appeals of that natural approach to food? Uh, I, I, I should, here? First off, I should point out, there is a great graphic novel um, called the, the Mushroom Fan Club, um, which is winning some awards right now, which is all about mushroom gathering, and it's a very similar aesthetic to what we see in Relish. Um, no, I, I think it's very much the appeal of um, um, getting out there, eating local, um, finding your own food in a really weird kind of like gatherer fantasy or something like that. Yeah, I think just having a more directly intimate relationship with the things that you eat. You know what I mean? Because you went and got it as opposed to you just went and bought it at the grocery store. I think that makes the act of, of cooking and eating feel much more um, intense and um, very distinctive each meal becomes its own entity rather than just you know time to refuel kind of thing well i mean i wonder i mean that is getting us back to sort of a difference possibly between delicious and dungeon versus relish which is an interesting one and that delicious and dungeon is this very fantastical text relish is ostensibly rooted in real life and yet delicious and dungeon is the one that has that more i would argue more holistic view of food you know more you know involved with the ecosystem kind of thing. We get some things in Relish about her having a garden and stuff, but I almost want to use the word consumption in terms of sort of the way she approaches food, you know, like European cheeses. She also like has a recipe for sushi, which, you know, is potentially questionable depending on whether you consider that appropriative of a culture or not. Hmm. I mean, she sort of, to me, throughout this book is sort of consuming a lot of different food references. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's kind of an eclectic do, way. I think one thing in her favor is that there's enough detail to the text that you yeah. can see the places where a li- deeper or where a political discussion or intersections happen. That right. uh, the reason she's working at that cheese shop is that yeah. she can't yeah. afford these yeah, cheeses sure. on her own. Sure. Yeah, and there's a connection to Delicious and Dungeon that in when she goes to Japan and. It's kind of an exporting of culture in both cases. That I mean, more on the reader side of Delicious and Dungeon. Mm-hmm. Well, I think maybe one of the interesting elements to come out of this is um, we're all pop culture scholars. So I think we've probably all encountered how um, subjective or even arbitrary a lot of our literary standards are. Uh, so I think about something like how fantasy literature is often devalued because it's too imaginative, as if being imaginative isn't an amazing <laughs> thing. But like... Mere escapism. Yeah. What Delicious in Dungeon does, it creates a fictional gastronomy. And I don't think anybody's going to give it a whole lot of credit for that. Uh, The same way that someone would credit, you know, um, um, James Joyce for building a good fictional politics or something like that. Um, But what Kui is doing there is an amazing feat of imagination. And it feels so lived in and real that, like, I can easily imagine cooking a basilisk. Uh, and the way that it presents itself, like, makes perfect sense. So that was something I was really impressed with um, in reading Delicious in Dungeon, uh, where Relish is taking from things that are um, real and really exploring existing world culture in a beautiful way. Delicious in Dungeon is making that stuff up uh, in a way that completely worked for me. Well, making it up, but also, like, really intertwining itself deeply with Dungeons and Dragons, which also yeah. like stole its <laughs> most of its stuff from other fantasy sources, but sure, it's I mean that's kind of a compliment for Delicious and Dungeon that it can take these. What does a basilisk taste like? Yeah. Does yeah. it taste like chicken? Does it taste like snake? What does a snake taste like? And how, what would it mean to eat 
a hollowed suit of armor. Yeah. Well, I really like what you're talking about in terms of, because you're sort of articulating what I did really like about Delicious and Dungeon, which is, you know, when I think about that type of game or that type of story, there's often that obsessive level of detail about things like weaponry or like right, that, that right. kind of thing, right? Whereas we're getting this obsessive detail about food. Yeah, it's which, like the armament scene in the Iliad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, you know, is a nice kind of bringing something up that's been devalued, you know, kind of changing the focus of that genre to something. I, I will keep using that word holistic, but I mean, but also community focused because mm-hmm. they make the food together. Well, in the food essay I was referring to by Brow, uh, there's this really interesting thing of positioning food or these this genre as part of an even larger genre of mastery manga. That like it's at least from the way she frames it, it's okay. similar to I've read a little bit of manga about sports. Yeah. And I really like that idea because again, that relates to the video game side of things that a lot of people play Dungeons and Dragons as how do I max out my character? Right. And what's the most effective way to murder everyone in this room? Yeah, conquest narrative. Yeah. And you see that like even very specifically in this, that uh Senshi is presented as being knowledgeable, but also so is the thief. And you pay attention to my mastery when it's relevant and I'll do the same for you. Mm-hmm. But also we can do our mastery without without leaving this place without anything left. Yeah. So you guys have kind of been touching on it a little bit, and I said that I wanted to talk about it. So let's get at kind of how the comics form works with food. As Michael was saying in his, his kind of some of his opening remarks, food is generally thought of as this kind of sensual experience that you would think comics, you know, wouldn't be especially adept at capturing. And yet these two comics kind of try to do that in some interesting ways. So we've talked a little bit about about the style, but I think we can expand on that a little bit more. So as Andrew mentioned, um, relish includes recipes, right? That it encourages you to make in conversation with the text. And I think you did, didn't you? I did, yeah. yeah. I made chocolate chip cookies and I made the um, carbonara pasta. Were either of them, did they work out? The carbonara pasta was delicious, but made my wife sick. Oh. (laughs) The chocolate chip cookies were, like, I literally couldn't get a seven-year-old to finish eating the cookie. Whoa. Which doesn't speak well. Whoa. I may have done something wrong. Well, she says, she says in the recipe that the, the secret weapon is to put a pinch of salt on the top of them. Which sounded if ingenious. If too much salt, it mm. really... It tasted salt. like the that cookies had been dipped in the ocean. Yes, <laughs> like I, I've made that mistake as a young chef. <laughs> I, I don't cook at all, to be clear, but when I was younger, I always used to try to make creative cookies, and I've done the putting too much salt in them thing before. Yeah, I may have just made the recipe wrong. That's entirely possible. <laughs> we'll, we'll give Lucy the benefit of the doubt and yeah. assume that's true. Exactly. So, okay, well, so about that then. So how do these comics kind of make food, try to make food real for us? How do they try to recapture some of that sensuality of food? Well, I would argue maybe the same for um, Delicious and Dungeon, but with relish, I think it's actually ideally suited to representing um, okay. culinary things. Yeah. So on the textual side, you've got the comics' unique capacity for internal monologue, Okay. Yeah. Uh, which is great. And then on the visual side, balancing that out, I mean... Cooking is such a visual experience right now. I mean, you know, they yeah, say it's all about the plating, yeah, it's all yeah. about the aesthetic. Uh, what you see, it's all, um, you know, people who have to take an Instagram pic uh, of every meal they have in a restaurant kind of thing. So I, I think in that sense, this, this works really, really well. It's a very appetizing book, if nothing else. And then 
I don't know if you'd agree with this, Michael, but I think through Senshi being that voice of like mm-hmm. the culinary scholar, it yeah. seems to kind of do the same thing sometimes. Yeah, it, I mean, the obvious difference being that it's doing it from the, it has its own advantage that by doing it from the fantastic point of view, yeah. it's like, you can't eat this anyway, because you're not going to find a walking mushroom <laughs> or whatever. It's interesting the the perspective's a little different, though, that, that <laughs> Senshi is framed as a kind of obsessive character and kind yeah. of ridiculous and weird. Yep. I was going to say that Nisli doesn't do the same thing, but I suppose that depends on how you interpret her parents. Sure. Well, I mean, in terms of what you're talking about, Andrew, that it does a very good job of sort of picturing the food. I mean, is that a point where we could interrogate what it's what this this text relationship with food is, though? Because it is is it just interested in picturing food, or I mean, how is it bringing the physical experience of food kind of into play as well? Is is it doing that sort of with the images? I mean, I've sort of got. Uh, like Cuervo Serrancheros, one open here, where you know you've got her drawing all the ingredients, you've got her sort of drawing the process of making the thing. I mean, what does sort of drawing it in this style, in the comic book form, really bring to the experience? How would this be different if this was just photos in a cookbook? Well, first off, we know photos in a cookbook are like like brutally doctored, right? <laughs> um, I think the cartoon style, that whole idea of amplification through simplification, yeah. when done right, can work. Yeah. Um, oh, what it's losing out on is things like. Um, texture so looking at the page that you have open the avocados aren't like you know dripping with perspiration like they would on you know a a, a menu just drawing it out in those layers helps a little bit i mean one of the ways that i I don't watch much in the way of cooking shows and so forth so one of the ways i see this culinary expertise is in those sped up videos that get shared on facebook and such and these remind me very similarly to that and let's show you the layers and so forth that those kind of do but there's also like a let's call it a cartoonification of food going on Mm -hmm. in our culture as well where you have people selling you know like stuffed avocado toast animals kind of things Uh, and, and like that's clearly a cartoon style rendering, just in three dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it plays with that as well, which maybe trades on things like um, nostalgia, the association of the comics form with juvenilia, mm-hmm. um, and um, just in general the, the sort of um, really vivid color contrast kind of material that comics is exceptionally good at rendering. I guess maybe what I'm getting at is. Is the way it's rendered and is the comic book form sort of bringing us inside of food or is it distant, distancing us from food? I mean, there's this layer of nostalgia, there's like this layer of, of abstraction. And I mean, you brought up amplification through simplification, but I mean, applying that to food is complicated. It is. I, I think maybe it brings us back to Delicious and Dungeon, the idea that, that what um, we're seeing with Nisley's work is almost fictional food. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because the visualization is fictional. Sort of ideas about dollhouses and, and toy yeah. food. Yeah, absolutely. And again, a juvenile association there, a very comforting kind of aesthetic. I don't think it's realistic food. It doesn't read as realistic. But at the same time, as I said, when you're going out and actually making the food as part of reading the book, um, then it adds that layer into it. I was going to say that the obvious identification here is that you went out and actually made this. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And it wasn't the same. Like her, the cookie that she draws is not the cookie that I ate. Yeah. And the pasta she draws isn't the pasta that I ate. Which is, you know, I think the common experience of let's follow the chef on TV. Yeah, sure. So, so let's play into that as well. But um, I mean, you know, is it that much more so when we're talking about drawn images of food and, you know, drawn mm-hmm. in this very... It's not that her... No, her art isn't realistic. I wouldn't say that. No. So... 
does that sort of exaggerate that difference? And is that a good or a bad thing? Or what does that do for us? That is a really good question. Because as I said, she's using a clear line style, yeah. which is a sort of very basic uh, unembellished style in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. As much as it's cartoonish, it's, it's not doing a lot with things like shading, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, really simple, steady line, uh, all that kind of stuff. So it's not really necessarily aggrandizing the food yeah. to some degree. Yeah. But in other ways, as I said, with like the color palette, mm-hmm. it kind of is. Yeah, I'm interested in that tension, how it's kind of doing both. You know, it kind of, you know, almost mythologizes the food, right. like, the way it presents it and the way it's sort of showing the strata of the huervos rancheros with the different layers sort of drawn in this very clear line style. And yet that also makes it very accessible. You know, right. that's your kind of amplification through simplification, right? If we recognize these foods, if we share memories with these foods, this kind of can bring us back back into the image and back into the experience. Mm-hmm. And then that can be amplified again by the way it encourages you to make the recipes. Yeah, I think coming back to the original question, I think it's a question of synesthetics. Because okay. um, you're representing a phenomenon that is um, taste sensation and mm-hmm. smell sensation mm-hmm. in the form of visual sensation. Mm-hmm. And, and that works mostly through association. Like you see beautiful food and you can almost kind of taste it. Mm-hmm. Um, this food, I don't think you can. So I don't think it is synesthetic. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I think it's kind of the cartoon interpretation of food and has an appeal, if not an, an appetizing appeal, uh, in a very different way. Yeah, I guess the thing I keep getting hung up on is, like, is it objectifying food, like, in, like, a negative way, you know, as an object, or, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Well, I mean, maybe the comparison with Delicious Dungeon is useful here because it goes the other way, that the food is portrayed in more realistic than the rest of the things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's also more difficult to imagine because we're talking about the eating of fantasy creatures. So yeah. it's not relying on well, kind it, of that. It kind of takes yeah. the fantasy creatures and translates them yes. into yes. food that would be familiar yes. for yeah. at least a Japanese audience. Yeah. Probably a lot of the readers right. outside the Japan Japan too. Well, I think there's a point of distinction there as well, just in terms of the associations with the food. Mm-hmm. So like I think to some degree, I'm gonna be like really hippie-ish. I think when you associate or even cook the food that Nisley's got in her book here, you are kind of consuming her memories, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the implied association, whereas Delicious in Dungeon, you're kind of consuming the adventure. So, like, eating well, basilisk makes me think I, I killed a basilisk, correct? Yeah, but you're also... I mean, if you go for the, that this is catering to audiences who have played Dungeons & Dragons, mm-hmm. then you're catering to their memories of having played the game before. Like, oh, the next time I kill this monster here, yeah, I'm going to tell my dungeon master, let's fry this thing up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I wonder if, like, because I feel like some of the tone of, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like we've all been doing this a little bit, is that we're being a little bit harder on relish, that we're being on Mm -hmm. delicious and dungeon. I wonder if that has to do with the generic, difference between the two delicious and dungeon we can treat as this deconstructive text because it's set in this kind of adventure genre right where we're not necessarily expecting deconstruction or deep self-analysis or or i wouldn't say that we're not expecting self-reflexivity because that's become so standard mm-hmm. whereas i feel like part of what we're getting dissatisfied by in relish is because we're situating it within that highly complex like highly self-analytical self-critical like autobio and specifically women's autobio tradition right yeah and maybe it's a little bit unfair to put that on it and it just maybe has to do with us needing to get more comfortable with more genres of comics existing and not having to relate everything back to 
other well, things. I, I can speak to my own experience here as someone a little more outside of comic scholarship. Mm -hmm. I feel really like I don't have the tools to analyze a lot of things that are put in the autobiography genre because they feel so elevated in terms of other comics. Yeah. And one of the things I liked about Relish is that it felt more approachable. Okay, than... yeah. Yeah, see, that's mm -hmm. fair. It's yeah. not trying to be mouse, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, we have multiple pull quotes from Bechdel, like on the front and the back of yeah. like, our yeah, editions of that... Relish, right? So it's yeah. just, it, that is encouraging the comparison to, you know, Fun yeah. Home. And I just, if I'm going to compare Relish to Fun Home, that's just a really unfair comparison. The two texts are doing something very different. They have some very different goals. So I feel like when you're drawing in that comparison, I'm expecting Relish to deconstruct our complicated cultural and gendered relationship with food. And I don't feel that it's doing that, but maybe it doesn't have to do that. Well, yeah, no, I, I think I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think there's kind of a, a subjective element to appreciating this. But as like just being critical, when we I take out the food stuff and we try to isolate the character memoir yeah. uh, in Relish, there's not much of an arc. Yeah. And it's actually very hard to isolate how this character changes or grows or what she's trying to say about her change or growth. Yeah. I mean, there's a she has a chapter on junk food and mm -hmm. it's kind of, it, I the, the that kind of junk food or the, the relish is kind of junk food in a way. Or at least comfort food. Comfort food, food we yeah. keep coming back to, right? Which is mm -hmm. also how I read But yeah, but I mean, yeah, but comfort food means something yeah. very different for one person versus another person. I mean, she is open about coming yes. from this foodie household and everything. So her version of comfort food yes. is like homemade salad and dressing. In my case, and, yeah. virtually everything I eat is yeah. junk food. Yeah. Therefore, <laughs> every comfort food will fall under that as well. Yeah, yeah. I just want to, this is the last page of Relish where she sort of tries to um, summarize what the book was about. Yeah. So she says, quote, bad habits or industrial compromises have forced many of us to reexamine our relationship to food and begin to embrace eating as a connection to our bodies and a form of celebration. We're still a young country, discovering new things, creating traditions of eating and sharing. Like me, still a young woman, learning about what moves me, what I want, what I love, and doing those things with excitement, curiosity, and relish. For me, that's not even really what this book is about. Yeah, I thought it was a bit of a weird ending as well. Yeah, to, to me, this, this book is more about the associative memory capacity of food Yeah. Um, in a much broader sense. And I almost find the book more interesting outside of that moralizing at the end of it. Like, yeah. I, I prefer it to be a little more ambiguous. Yeah. I but mean, again, it could be subjective. I mean, certainly one of the parts of the book that kind of bothered me was when she was, you know, talking about people who just really don't care that much about food and how she thinks about them as zombies. And I sort of was like, <laughs> that's funny. And like, she's admitting that, you know, which, you know, you can't criticize her for admitting that. And I think if we have something that we're very into, and you know, if you're really into music and other people, you have some of this, I just don't care about music. We all have a little bit of that. Yeah, how can for you, sure. How can you enjoy the world without having that passion for that thing that I'm so passionate about? But at the same time, if she's going to sort of moralize like that at the end, she's sort of saying that, you know, I need to change. I need to be more like her in a way. And I just, I don't know. I had like a complicated response to that. Yeah, well, and even in that last page, there's at least four different themes. Yeah, yeah. Again, the idea that America is a nation finding its culinary culture. Yeah. The idea that whatever you do, you have to do with passion. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that um, 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 we've sort of lost track uh, with the value of food in our lives through yeah. a bunch of other things and maybe a couple other things as well 
I guess I'm saying the last page of this book to me does it a disservice. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think that's fair because it maybe is partly that last page that made me sort of think back on the rest of the book and want to kind of look to it for a thesis about what yeah. do we do about our complicated relationship with food, which, again, I don't think was the mission of this comic. I don't think it has to be the mission of this no. comic. It's a memoir. It's not an essay. But, yeah, maybe it's that last page that's sort of screwing us up there a little bit. Yeah, and I think maybe the book even reads better if you treat it more as um, a series of essays rather than one. Yeah, yeah that could be two. Episodes? Yeah. Episodes. Because it is very episodic, and there's not a, a lot of like, like strong interconnections between them, other than food. Okay, so one of the things that we've kind of been tiptoeing around a little bit is sort of the difficulty of us as Caucasian Western readers dealing with manga text. And the fact that I say manga is interesting, I'd sort of been told to say it that way at various comics conferences where both of you have been saying manga. So that in itself represents kind of some of the difficulties of <laughs> studying manga or manga sort of within the North American context. It's been very underrepresented within comic scholarship mm -hmm. in um, English-speaking countries because of some of these kind of, you know, cultural barriers, cultural differences. I think there's an idea that a lot of us are afraid to try to study manga because it'll seem appropriative. At least that's certainly right. a fear that I have. But again, that results well, in it being underrepresented. How, what are your strategies for kind of approaching it? Where do we need to kind of go to do a better job of approaching manga, both as readers and as scholars, in a way that's not appropriative, in a way that's respectful, but also in a way that can include it? Because otherwise, we're just eliminating this wonderful comics tradition. That, and this juggernaut that yeah, excels North American exactly, comics exactly. in North and America. Which, is this becoming, point. which at this point, yeah, exactly, is so popular in North America. Well, I think maybe a little bit of our hesitation comes from the fact that we're, and I, I don't want to speak over anyone's experience, but I think we're just old enough to have been too old when anime started being a real hit on children's cartoons. Mm -hmm. It's like I remember it, but I just, I was maybe a teenager when like <clears throat> Sailor Moon was sort yeah. of on a lot. And I just thought it was really goofy and weird and didn't have a connection. And to I it. think yeah. if you grew up with Pokemon and yeah. Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z, it feels like much less appropriate because yeah. these are, this is your childhood. Yeah. I mean, part of the issue with appropriation here too is Japan has worked very, very hard to sell this stuff to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on that level, a lot of, well, I mean, I'll talk about this at more length later, but a lot of the manga essays are about the strategies that Japan has, or a lot of essays in this collection are about the strategies that Japan and Japanese companies have made to make manga feel like something that yeah. everyone could enjoy and mm -hmm. to partake in. Yeah, I mean, it is funny. I mean, yeah, I mean, just that Sailor Moon thing again. By the way, when I'm saying it's goofy and weird, that's my 14-year-old self talking. I'm not saying that it is those things. But, but well, it is. Well, but in, a, in a positive way, perhaps, not yeah, necessarily yeah. a negative way. Uh, I've since read many essays that have made me appreciate it more fully. But um, I have found with sort of women maybe like five, eight years younger than me, they have a very different relationship with Sailor Moon than I have. Right. They see it as this real, like, sort of, post-feminist but in a good way kind of celebration celebratory yeah, I, text which I, I didn't read. i don't have that context from my experience that i have. actually uh, just watched the sailor moon pilot recently oh yeah and it felt really really unusual for like a protagonist a female protagonist who's allowed to screw up 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I know a lot of women gravitate towards it for, you can be a hero, but also feminine, which is sort of mm-hmm. a hallmark of post-feminism and mm-hmm. sort of is important. Problematic, but important. Um, well, what your thoughts, Andrew? How, how are we going to do better at, you know, reading, <laughs> studying manga? This is a huge question that I know we're not going to be able to answer, but as common yeah. scholars, we've thought about this. Well, I, I, I think I had proposed several different manga uh, on our little list of potential pairings. Yeah, yeah. And our first manga is this weird story about going into a dungeon, not, you know, good Akira weird, weird. or Ghost in the Shell, or all these things that I was um, really intensely into. Um, I actually, I served as a, um, an external reader on a master's student's defense uh, on anime. Yeah. Uh, and one of the questions that I asked them is, are you the right person to be studying this? Yeah. Uh, and I think the answer was... Um, the idea that this stuff, ha- we're not necessarily studying it for um, the context surrounding where it was created, because that's that's hard to do, yeah. and that enterprise is going to be appropriative. Like, there's, yeah. there's really no way around it. But as this thing that has massive influence on our culture, being yeah. kind of in, in that culture of North American reception to manga, yeah. I think that's where the work really needs to be done. Yeah. Um, so I, I think maybe emphasizing the site of um, reception or reading over the site of creation is maybe the key to dodging. I, I agree that. with you, except for what makes me nervous about that approach is that you're sort of like, well, what does this mean for white people? And, which is also well, kind of a well, bad... North Americans. Yeah, 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 North Americans, but you know, we kind of mean white people. If I can <laughs> like, bring in my own disciplinary background here, it forms a really interesting context or contrast with game studies where we, for the most part, really don't make the distinction between Japanese games and Western games Mm -hmm. because Japanese creators have so dominated the game industry. Right. At least dominated much at a much greater saturation or earlier saturation, let's say, than manga. But at the same time, I think that creates an almost reverse blind spot where, or a, a different blind spot where we don't talk about the cultural significance of this text coming from Japan. Right. Yeah. It's, it's even more complicated when it comes to manga, though, because the main influence of manga is Asama Tezuka. Tezuka-sensei, as they call him. Tezuka's main influence is Walt Disney. So you get this really weird circular thing and this connection to colonial Japan and all the politics yeah. surrounding that. Right. It's it's rough, man. Trying well, to I mean, this. video games have a comparison there that video Japanese video games has its root and let's look at this North American work and what can we do with it? Yeah, but also really complicated in that. So I, I think the short answer is we should just read Delicious and Dungeon and appreciate. It. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true, and perhaps have slightly less anxiety about just appreciating it and enjoying it. I'm not sure. Yeah, again, it's this question of context in, in any kind of literary studies, which yeah. is completely inescapable. Yeah. Uh, the author is dead versus not. Um, but anytime you're moving across cultures, uh, that that context becomes either harder to achieve or maybe even impossible. And again, pursuing it can actually create more problems than, than you might otherwise encounter, I think. That's a good concluding sentence. I like the I think almost at the end. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things, it's another one of these things that sort of come up in some of our discussion that I think we could put sort of a finer point on in terms of how these texts work in relation to each other and in terms of their relationship with food. So in Delicious and Dungeon, I'm interested in how identification works. The characters in that text are very much like archetypes or ciphers, you know, characters that we recognize from other types of texts. 
whereas we're kind of very distant from them on, on a personal level. We get certain personal details about them, but in a very different way than something like Relish, which is a memoir in which the author and the artist are obviously directly present because this is a story about her food memories, about her life, which she's speaking in the first person. So I'm curious about how identification interacts with that sensuality of food, you know, with that kind of bringing us into that world. How can we have this one text where the characters are kind of ciphers, but we're still brought into that sensual experience of food, versus another text where the author is the writer and it still has a very sensual experience with food? That's a very long-winded question, but that means it's open to very, <laughs> very, I don't know, um, very subjective answers, perhaps. I think Delicious in Dungeon, I mean, the identification is almost a meta level that yeah. we are so familiar, or that anyone familiar with this type of story is yeah. familiar with these types of characters yeah, yeah. and then it becomes a case of how would they react in this situation and then you can kind of ease your way on as far as that goes that even the fact that we have watched lord of the rings kind yeah. of informs you how to respond to these yeah. yeah and i mean i mean it's sort of that thing that we experience when we interact with genre fiction right where the enjoyment is recognizing the conventions but those subtle differences right, right? and we get that thrill from i know how this is going to go but does it go this way or not and then those subtle differences kind of can appeal oh i was going to ask yeah. you about video games yes yes <laughs> also what i was thinking. yes okay so does this work a little bit similarly to how it works sort of in a video game where we often get these kind of blank slate characters but we end up investing in that world sort of through our interaction i think so that with video games it's all about the characters are deliberately kept as blank slates yeah. because you're supposed to put yourself into that role. Yeah. So a neutral mask, as we say yeah. in comics. Yes. I mean, yeah. yeah so we <laughs> I, I mean, when I, my first read of Scott McCloud as a neophyte, and like, we abstract the character. We do the abstract cartoon because they're universal. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I've played that video game. Yeah. I've played all of those video yeah. games. Yeah. yeah, it works on that level. That In that case, even, as you said, the slightest deviation becomes a marker that you can mm -hmm. relate to a little bit more. And I mean, the fact that these are very, these are monsters taken directly from the Dungeons and Dragons dungeon manual, yeah. which in turn have been plagiarized from years and years of <laughs> fantasy buildup. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's a gelatinous cube in this one, but I would bet money there is in some point in the series. <laughs> What about Relish? I mean, I think it's sort of interesting the way it is, like a memoir, but I didn't really feel that close to, yeah. to Nestle in it. She keeps herself at a little bit of a distance. I think this is a cool aspect of Relish in a, in a weird way. I mean, as mentioned, your identification with the protagonist is going to be subjective in a memoir. Yeah. Just based on, you know, the nature of their life in contrast to yours and your capacity to you know, sort of sympathize with that. Um, I, I find some of her life a little bit alienating i i find yeah. her existence to be kind of privileged in ways that i'm i'm like jealous of yeah, <laughs> and weirdly and I mean, angry towards because, her yeah i mean before. you can't be angry at someone about that but you know you do relate it back to your own life yeah and, and i'm not I'm, I'm not a young woman raised in upstate <laughs> new york on an organic farm kind of thing so i'm distant from this this person so i'm getting this glimpse into their lives and it's kind of spectacle uh, in, in that sort of traditional um Gunther Kress and Theo Van Leeuwen thing. Um, offer versus demand. Okay. So for me, not being able to identify with Nisley and the life she lives, it's very much an offer. It's 
here, here's a sort of speculation thing that you can kind of look at and, and see a world that you were not a part of. But then with the different food elements, it brings me back to that like universal identifier because she likes cookies and I like cookies a lot too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's really weird to be able yeah. to, to oscillate between I've this very five personal life. before when they're really good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you're kind of um, bouncing back and forth between how different this life is mm-hmm. and, and how I'm just an outsider observer watching it. And then you suddenly get dragged in yeah. through that yeah. universality of yeah. the food appreciation. Um, so I think that's one of the aspects of the text that really, really works yeah. kind of in, in an interesting way compared to contemporary memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the way she like talks about so many different types of food can be quite inclusive that way, oh, too, because yeah. as much as I am definitely not a foodie, I mean, she does talk about fast food. She talks about cookies. She talks about croissants. I like those things. And yeah, like the idea of I can't quite get that food like that perfect yeah, time I had it. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty universal. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> There's a song about that, the MacArthur Park thing, and I'll never have that recipe. <laughs> now we are going to be having our academic review for this month. Michael is going to be reviewing Manga, an Anthology of Global Perspectives, edited by Tony Johnson Woods. Take it away, Michael. Thanks. Despite the veneer of professionalism I've carefully crafted today, My knowledge of manga as both reader and scholar is pretty spotty. Uh, Consequently, I picked an essay collection that I hoped would serve to bring me up to speed. Tony Johnson Wood's edited collection, Manga, an Anthology of Global and Cultural Perspectives. So for the most part, the book's given me what I'm looking for, and I feel much more confident on the subject of manga in general, and much more eager to go out and read more of it. After a brief introduction by Johnson Woods, the book is divided into four sections. Uh, manga and Genre provides five essays that give broad genre uh, or broad outlines of manga's bigger genres, specifically shonen or boys comics, sojo or girls comics, and bishonen, a subgenre of girls comics that feature beautiful male protagonists. The second section, Manga in Depth, consists of five essays regarding specific manga or sets of mangas that have... Manga plural is also manga. Okay, uh, that have, in the author's opinion, deserve that deserve to have wider recognition among a Western audience. The third section, Reading Manga, has three chapters on structure in manga and studio creation of it. The final section is Manga in the World, and consists of seven chapters that look at manga reception in Europe, North America, and the rest of Asia. As 20 chapters is far too many for me to touch on each one, let me provide a few highlights. The first section does a really great job of outlining the generalities of manga, and I came away with both a broad future reading list and a broad understanding of manga's depth. In terms of specific chapters, I'd like to highlight one that I've already mentioned a few times today, Lori Brow's Oshinbo's Adventure in Eating, Food, Communication, and Culture in Japanese Comics which covers the subgenre of gourmet-based manga and was absolutely crucial in providing me with the theoretical background for Delicious in Dungeon. Browse's focus on foods as a mean of communication and description of common visual food technique really helped me solidify the themes of the manga we read today. Uh, as a Miyazaki fan, I was also really interested in Mark Herstein's essay in Chapter 10, The Reluctant Messiah, Miyazaka Howe's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind manga. Herstein presents a convincing reading of both the 12-year-running manga and its creator in terms of, Mi- of Miyazaki's views on communism and ecological responsibility. In Chapter 11, Japanese Visual Language, The Structure of Manga, 
Neil Cohen offers a panel-centric alternative to McLeod's study of types of closures and uses them to address McLeod's claims about difference when it comes to manga and superhero comics. I'll, I'll put his conclusions on that to one side, but I feel te tested his panel method with my students, and they found it really useful to work with, a simple but informative approach for analyzing comics. Finally, I'll give a shout out to Emma Haley's Manga Shakespeare chapter, and Boisseau, Pelletieri, Dahl, Winkoff, and Peldi's, or Beldi's Manga in Europe chapter for providing the perspective of British manga publishers and creators and European manga fans, respectively. Uh, quick fact here, 70% of the German comic industry as of 2008 was imported manga, and most of it is manga for girls. Uh, the book has some disadvantages, one particular to me perhaps as a game studies person, that I noticed the authors gave a lot of credit to anime as a gateway export that leads to manga, but much less attention was paid to Japanese video games. And granted, it doesn't have the same or direct relationship as between manga and anime, but for myself and a number of people my age, Nintendo, Sony, Sega, and others served as our introduction to Japanese cultural products. Another risk that comes with a collection of this size is that essays will overlap with each other. For the most part, the essays definitely avoid that, but I think the global perspective section encroach on each other a bit. Last, and this is not really something the book could avoid, some of the research is now outdated. The book was published in 2010, and many of the essays were written long before that. My understanding is that the manga market has declined globally a little bit since then, and I wonder how that decline affects some of the issues they raise. Those issues aside, however, the book is an excellent introduction to manga that manages to be both detailed and accessible. I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to dip their toe in the field. That just about wraps things up, other than we have been taken to doing recommendations at the end of our episodes, so I know Andrew and Michael, you guys both have some good ones, so recommendations related to this month's pairing. So mildly related to our discussion on manga, I would recommend A Drifting Life by Yoshihiro Tatsumi which is um, a memoir, in keeping with the relish thing, um, about a per person coming up in the manga industry, encounters with Asama Tezuka, finding their voice, their sort of creative inspiration, uh, and a really good kind of um, um, overview of what the industry was and where it came from and all that kind of thing. A, a lot of what I know about manga, I know more from this text than I do from any academic texts on manga, and I think that gives me a kind of um, warmer appreciation for the manga industry. Huh, interesting. How about you, Michael? Uh, I've got one that goes in a... I, I'm also recommending a manga of a very different direction. <laughs> um, this is my favorite manga series, Kazumi-kun Can't You Read the Room by Moscow, and it's a Sojo high school romance comedy manga. Uh, the basic starting idea is that the most popular girl in the class develops a crush on the weirdo, which is a story that we see very commonly in pop culture, but this isn't almost, she is the lead here, not him. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of difference that this is from her perspective and less him. And it's just really warm and enjoyable. It's I personally find it similar in tone to Delicious in Dungeon, your mileage may vary. My recommendation has nothing to do with these months' texts because I really just honestly couldn't think of anything that was particularly relevant. So I'm going to recommend... 
for good or bad Marvel's Cloak and Dagger television show because I'm the only person I know that's seen it and I want to talk with somebody else about whether it was good or not because uh, I think it fell apart at the end but it had some moments and uh, I want to talk about it with someone so someone out there go watch it. (laughs) Um, I think that just about wraps things up other than just we're going to do a thank you to the Communication, Pop Culture and Film Department at Brock for the use of their facilities and a thank you to St. Jerome's for having all this wonderful equipment for us and to also tell you about our next pairing, which is going to be Nimona by Noel Stevens and Apocalyptic Girl by Andrew McLean. See you then.